Welcome back. This is a podcast miniseries on digital technologies and human rights, framed by a conference on the topic last April, put on by the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University and the Office of the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in Extreme Poverty. I'm your host and guide, Stevie Bergman. We have a tendency to talk about these tools as if they are disruptors. The tools are often much more evolution than revolution. They're grounded in a policy context and a history. In the welfare context, what I've seen is that AI is largely used for the following purposes. One is harassment and deterrence, because you're monitoring and tracking people. You're making life more difficult in terms of you have to enter everything into a computer in order to get benefits, etc. Second is targeting to make sure that people are not getting benefits they shouldn't. Third is conditionality. We want to make sure that if you're going to get enough to live on, you're going to do a whole range of other things, whether it's cutting out alcohol, whether it's not going near drugs, whether it's not gambling or whatever. There's no end to the conditionalities that can be thought up. Fourth is intrusiveness because we are happy to collect data about these poor people that if they tried to collect about us, at least overtly, we would rebel and reject comprehensively. Each one of these is a sort of failure or blind spot in the design or operation of a system, and in every case, there's something you can do to reduce the cause of bias. Every case, some mitigation is possible, but these problems don't mitigate themselves. The speakers you just heard were professors Virginia Eubanks, Philip Alston, and Edward Felton. Professor Alston is also the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. I think this is also a very good entry point into the much broader set of issues about the underlying ethos of AI. I know that's going very broadly and the extent to which it risks bypassing the whole human rights framework. There really is a sense that human rights were for the 20th century. Now it's over to the tech companies. They're the ones who are being radically empowered in this area, while the human rights institutions and principles are being disempowered and marginalized. And you'll find no shortage of subtle justifications for that in the AI literature. You know, we need to be flexible, we need to be agile, we need to deal with problems that have never been confronted before. And unfortunately, that's why we need to leave behind the basic human rights framework. But all that was fought for in the 20th century to bring about respect for human rights and acknowledgement of a set of basic principles is potentially at risk. In this episode, we're going to discuss the key questions we must ask when an artificial intelligence system is implemented, and particularly in the area of social protection. There are, of course, many questions whenever any policy is being deployed, and it is of particular concern when we are discussing the lives of the most impoverished members of our society, as how these questions are answered carries life or death consequences. To do this, I'm going to discuss three different cases, two of which are welfare, and the last isn't. However, these are all good examples of AI use on vulnerable populations and will help us approach relevant questions. First, an algorithm to determine Medicaid benefits in Indiana. In the U.S. state of Indiana, in an effort to cut costs and reduce perceived fraud, 
lawmakers implemented an automated and privatized welfare eligibility system. Here, I'm quoting an article on the issue put out by the Shorenstein Center. A link to the article is in the notes for this episode. In 2006, the state signed a 10-year contract with IBM and the call center company Affiliated Computer Services, or ACS, to automate its public assistance eligibility processes. For those applying to means-tested public assistance programs like Medicaid or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, this meant that rather than having their eligibility verified by a caseworker, they were approved or denied assistance by an algorithm and case management system developed by IBM. To meet contract demands for faster eligibility decisions, IBM's data management system and call center workers denied thousands of recipients assistance for failure to cooperate. IBM's data management system frequently lost both applicant records and documents submitted by clients in a timely manner. Meanwhile, the algorithms were only capable of assigning blame to applicants for missing documents. As a result, thousands of Hoosiers lost assistance through no fault of their own, including a woman denied Medicaid for failing to answer a call from ACS while she was being hospitalized for heart failure. Indiana ended up canceling the contract three years later and sought more than $170 million in damages from IBM, in a case that was eventually ruled in the state's favor by the Indiana Supreme Court. These tools are having real impacts on real human beings right now. Virginia Eubanks speaking at the conference. So, for example, the um, attempt to automate all of the eligibility processes for the welfare system in the state of Indiana um, had impacts everywhere from, uh, if not directly causing death, at least increasing the suffering of people who should have been getting support from the system, to problems like raising administrative burdens so high that after people have had an experience with this automated system, even though they're eligible for public assistance, refuse to go back on public assistance because the experience has been so incredibly damaging for them. So not only can these systems have the direct impacts of increasing suffering and stripping people of their entitlements, but they also strip people of established rights, things like due process, and teach lessons about how government should work. So you can see some serious issues involving a lack of accountability and transparency and remedies for those harmed. All of these issues cropped up in Indiana with utterly disastrous results. And applicable here is a word of warning from one of the panelists, Professor Scarlett Wilcock. Yes, they they are used to propel and facilitate existing policies, but they can also produce some unexpected results. So, and I also think not only unexpected results, that they can furtively change the policy, right, without any policy change at all. Um, And that's what RoboDebt did as well. So it didn't just automate something, it redistributed responsibilities, right, without any passage of law or official policy. She is discussing a scandal in Australia colloquially called RoboDebt. However, there is this same concern, this shift in implementation that changes the policy without changing the law that occurred in this case in Indiana. And I'll point out a very common theme here, which is implementing these systems in order to cut costs in a cash-strapped system. You know, the, the government in Australia, and that, that would be the same everywhere, is quite happy to throw around millions of dollars for you know, anti-fraud efforts. Professor Scarlett Wilcock. So we've got a you know, new task force called Task Force Integrity, right? I'm like, integrity for whom? When you hear this, alarm bells should go off. Not that cost-cutting, fraud prevention, and efficiency aren't things that need to be done, but if they're the overarching goal, is there also care being taken to make sure that there are no human costs? This is important to ask, but before we go on, let's take a step back. 
Keeping all of this in mind, let's go into an overview of the issues typically discussed at the interface of artificial intelligence technology and applying that AI in a societal context. Here's Professor Edward Felton. Now let me talk very briefly about two of the challenges that happen at the boundary between the technical and the institutional or policy realms. Uh, the first is issues around explainability, transparency, and accountability. And the second is issues around the potential for bias in the operation of machine learning systems. First, Professor Felton mentions explainability, transparency, and accountability. In doing so, he addresses a typical complaint about artificial intelligence, that these systems are so opaque that we cannot explain them or why they are getting the answers they do, that they aren't transparent. And he pushes back on this, making the following point. Human decision-making, for example, we know suffers from cognitive bias. Some of those biases can be persistent and socially pernicious. There is a lack of transparency. If you are worried about a decision-making mechanism, which is difficult to understand and non-transparent, I would point you to this one. Here, he is referring to a picture of a human brain. This is a notoriously non-transparent um, seat of decision-making. We know surprisingly little about it, given the, our advanced state of knowledge about many aspects of the world. And if you want to know why this thing did what it did, you can ask, and you will probably get an answer. Uh, but that answer may well be self-serving. It may, it may well be a just-so story to justify a decision that was, at the end of the day, made for a different reason. So there are real reasons to worry about issues of transparency with respect to human decision-making. And indeed, AI systems can be much more transparent in detail than a brain, in the sense that a machine learning system may be extremely complex, but we can look inside it and see everything that's happening in there. Unlike with the brain, where we have very limited ability to understand why it does what it does or how it got to be the way it is, with an AI system, we have very detailed visibility at a technical level. It may not be easy to operate that, but nonetheless, there is at least the possibility of getting a better understanding of what's happening in the decision-making process and being able to say with higher confidence which factors or effects were involved in a decision. So Professor Felton makes the point here that we cannot dig into the reasoning processes that went into a human decision, so we cannot determine definitively if they're biased. However, we could do so with a machine learning system and then make changes. Though he admits that this is not always easy. Here's Professor Felton again. Now, people often complain about, either in practice or in the abstract, about a lack of explainability in AI or machine learning systems. And I think it's useful to look at the different flavors. And I would postulate that there are at least four flavors of different sorts of explainability complaints that people have. And it's useful to think about each of them and to understand and to distinguish among these complaints in practice when people talk about lack of explainability. The first type of explainability complaint is really one about non-transparency. That is, explanatory information exists, but you can't see it. Someone who is able to interrogate a system chooses not to do so or chooses not to let uh, you as an individual or some institution see it. And this, of course, is very much like the sort of transparency challenge that people and organizations have always faced. It's difficult to hold a system or organization accountable if you don't know what they did or, or why. So that is a more traditional form of lack of explainability, simply due to information not being available. 
The, the second type of explainability complaint is complexity. Here, detailed explanatory information exists, but nobody has been able to find a simple holistic summary of the algorithm's behavior. It just seems very complicated. If there is some insight that will unlock uh, our understanding of how, this, of how some system is operating, uh, we haven't figured it out yet. So complexity, maybe the system can be explained in some intuitive way, but, but we haven't figured it out at, at some point in time. That is the second form of complaint, inherent complexity. The third one is non-intuitiveness. Uh, here, the scenario is that we understand what the system is doing. It seems to be applying some simple rule or principle or some sort of framework for making the decision it's making, and we understand what that framework is, but we can't figure out why that framework should be effective or why it performs as well as it does. So here, perhaps, the system has figured out some regularity in the world which we don't understand. This is rather like the situation where you're watching some very skilled person do their work, and that person is much better at that work than you are, and therefore it can be mystifying to you why they are doing what they're doing. So something is going on, we know what's going on, but we don't know why it works. And then the final form of explainability complaint is a lack of justification. Here the scenario is that we understand how the system works, and we understand why it is successful, but we want a justification, we want a rationale or public reason that says why that is okay, why that is consistent with uh, whatever legal or ethical or human rights framework we expect the system to operate within. All right, so explainability breaks down into different sorts of flavors, and depending on which of these situations you're in, the remedy or response is likely to be different. These are good points. However, I'd also like to play a clip of Professor Eubanks pushing back. We can, of course, ask people why they make decisions the way, we, the way they do. Um, none of us are perfectly transparent to ourselves, which is why therapy exists. At the same time, I find this philosophy that human decision-making is opaque and unknowable and machine decision-making is clear and transparent, incredibly troubling. Because to me, the goal is social development for us all. So there is another reason to ask people about why they're making decisions the way they do beyond capturing whether or not those decisions are accurate. It is so we can have some of the most difficult conversations we need to be having as a culture, and so we can all move forward in our ethical development. Okay, now considering the potential for bias as another issue at the interface of society and machine learning systems. Bias is of course prejudice in favor or against something, usually a person or a group. The worry here is in creating a system that is unfair. We usually ascribe bias to people, but this can also apply to machine learning systems. I'll let Professor Felton take it from here. However, going into this clip, recall that machine learning systems form their models from large amounts of real world data data from humans, and using statistics. There are many different sources of bias in a, in a system that can lead to a biased outcome in a machine learning system. The first source of bias is that the answers deemed correct in your data set are in fact biased. For example, you might be giving it a training data set where the correct answers, labeled correct answers in the data set, are the decisions of people in the past. 
And to the extent that those decisions may incorporate bias, you are now instructing the machine to emulate that biased behavior, and the result is likely to be a biased outcome. So the correct answers in the data might be biased. Second, the data set might not be representative of the population. This is a very common problem where especially poor or disadvantaged uh, populations may be underrepresented in your data set. And if a group is underrepresented in your data set, then the system will, will tend to overweight the interests of those groups that are overrepresented in your data set. Um, and therefore, people who are less visible in society for some reason uh, are likely to be less visible to your machine learning system. The third source of bias is that these systems are typically uh, trained or optimized to minimize the total number of errors that they make across a whole population. But in most formulations of machine learning problems, there's no notion of distributional justice with respect to those errors. That is, if the system finds that the total number of errors is slightly lower, if we assign all of the errors to one subpopulation, it will do that because we've instructed it to minimize total errors. So unless there is some notion of distributional fairness in the way that the system's errors occur, the system might very well discover that it is efficient to put all of the errors into one subpopulation. Uh, another very common source of bias is what is uh, often characterized as optimizing the wrong thing. For example, we are trying to, say, uh, maximize the number of arrests rather than minimizing the amount of crime, and this can often lead to biased outcomes. And then finally, one of the most pernicious types of uh, sources of bias is a sort of feedback loop in which the operation of an AI system um, affects the data set that it sees in the future. For example, a predictive policing algorithm might send more police to one neighborhood, the result being that there are more arrests occurring in that neighborhood and a higher percentage of crimes are reported in that neighborhood, therefore creating a future data set in which there appears to be more need for police in that neighborhood and leading to a misallocation of law enforcement resources. Okay, let's go through this. First, Professor Felton mentions bias in the input data and the data used to build the model. For example, an unrepresented population. If that system is determining medical benefits, say, this could be a huge problem if there is a particular population not represented in the data used to train the model, so they're not represented in the model. Further, if the system is being trained or optimized to minimize errors, then you can get issues with all the errors going into one category of the population. He refers to this as distributional justice of errors. And he mentions optimizing the wrong thing. Professor Felton uses the example of maximizing the number of arrests versus minimizing the amount of crime, which is a real issue in criminal justice where machine learning systems are being employed by police departments as an attempt to efficiently allocate resources. The problem here is that the police don't actually have perfect knowledge of where and when crime is happening, but they can use a proxy. In this case, data they do have, which is arrests. Seems like a pretty good proxy, but it turns out that it is problematic, particularly when the arrest data itself is biased, say, towards a particular racial group. Another example was shown in a recent study, where researchers found that a machine learning system for allocating extra care to high-risk patients was racially unbiased with respect to the quantity it was optimizing for, and this was cost to the healthcare system, However, when the researchers changed it to instead optimize for allocating more care to those patients with more chronic health conditions, 
they found it was racially biased. So there are many different sources of bias. Um, and note that I didn't say, what I didn't mention, at least not explicitly, was the idea that the question of whether the practitioners who are operating the system are pure of heart probably affects the likelihood of these things, but it's not the direct mechanism. And indeed, uh, people who have biases themselves are capable of building systems that are less biased than themselves and ought to be held to that standard. And this is a key point, that those individuals who are creating the machine learning system could be biased people. We're all flawed. But they can and should still create an unbiased machine learning system, that this is possible, and as Professor Felton states, we should be holding them to that standard. In every one of these cases, mitigation is possible. Each one of these is a sort of failure or blind spot in the design or operation of a system. And in every case, there's something you can do to reduce the uh, cause of bias. Um, for example, if the data set is not representative of the population, you can get more data on underrepresented groups, or you can put weights on the different parts of the data in order to make sure that the interests of, um, of all groups are given the appropriate weight. Um, if the system minimizes total errors by assigning more error to one group, you can explicitly instruct the system to take into account the distribution of errors among groups as part of what it's optimizing, and so on. In every case, some mitigation is possible, but these problems don't mitigate themselves. This is perhaps my favorite quote from the entire conference, that in each of these cases, there is something you can do to mitigate bias, but these problems don't mitigate themselves. To me, it is both a standard of what we should expect from machine learning practitioners and a hope that we as a community, as a society, could do this well. And finally, let's talk about privacy. Here is Professor Scarlett Wilcox. There has always been a kind of desire and seemingly no barrier to taking data from poor people and working class people. So really, the stakes are high, but also because of the nature of the data that uh, we collect and have always collected, the risk of error, discrimination, misuse are incredibly high. So the stakes are high, but the risks are very, really high too. As an AI system makes a model based on data, the more good, relevant data, the better. This is the reason large tech companies are after your data, to feed their AIs whether it's language recognition for Siri or Alexa or ads. Let me leave you with this clip from Professor Wilcox again. I want to say one thing briefly, briefly on the right to privacy. And I know it's been said, but I feel like I have to say it again because um, I feel like it, it is still the dominant way of talking about rights in this space. And in my opinion and from my perspective, it's deeply inadequate. In fact, it might even be irrelevant for now. So. This is, and this is why. So the data, that's always been collected. So there really hasn't ever been a right to privacy in practice for people that are poor, at least not in Australia. Uh, so there hasn't really, that, that, that data's always been collected, it's always been stored, and it's always been appropriated and used for other purposes. So you can see reports about the, they'll use it for unemployment data, or, you know, it, but other purposes as well, sort of trying to map social maladies or, or what have you, and now we've just got the modern form of that in that sense. Uh, so in terms of a, a privacy right, and, and also in my experience with, um, with working with clients that are facing these issues, they're like, what privacy, right? And you know what, what I want to do right now is I want to pay my rent and feed my kids. And so I'll do what I can to do that first. 
Privacy is certainly an important right and consideration here, and certainly a key issue in the story of expanding use of AI across the world. In fact, keep in mind that it is an issue with any system that requires vast amounts of user or citizen data to function, in particular if that data is sensitive in nature. As a thought experiment, think of the countries where homosexuality is stigmatized and even illegal. What if the data collected includes location data and that data shows you visiting a nightclub frequented by the gay community? It is imperative that that information is kept private. And if it isn't, it could be disastrous. Now, let's go into our second case study, a system being used in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. To describe this, I'll be calling on an investigation by the New York Times released in January 2018. The link can be found again in the notes for the show. Starting in 2016, Allegheny County began using an algorithm to give children a risk score from 1 to 20, where 20 is the highest risk. The assessment was based on a statistical analysis of four years of prior calls using well over 100 criteria maintained in eight databases for jails, psychiatric services, public welfare benefits, drug and alcohol treatment centers, and more. Generally, this is up to the discretion of a call screener who listens to a call from a child or concerned citizen, then goes through the records to give their estimate of the risk. Now, the call screener can still make that estimation, but they have the added input of the predictive analytics algorithm. Finding all the information that goes into the assessment algorithm would have taken the screener hours, time they don't have, as they are expected to make a determination of the case in an hour at most. Instead, the software spits out a score in seconds. Key to note here is that the software, in calculating the score, not only finds the information in the database for the child's case, but makes a determination as to how to weight each of those pieces of information. In other words, how relevant the different information is in giving that score. This information could include whether or not the parents were attending a drug treatment center for addiction to opiates, a history of arrest and jail on drug possession charges, any significant drug or criminal histories, including allegations, if anyone in the family has a physical disability or any diagnoses of developmental or mental health issues with the child or in the family, and more. One of the technologists who created the algorithm told the New York Times reporter, what the screeners have is a lot of data, but it's quite difficult to navigate and know which factors are most important. Within a single call, you might have two children, an alleged perpetrator, you'll have mom, you might have another adult in the household, all these people will have histories in the system that the person screening the call can go investigate. But the human brain is not that deft at harnessing and making sense of all that data. So this is what the assessment algorithm is meant to do, make sense of the data. And whenever you hear a, quote, risk assessment algorithm being used nowadays, that is generally a machine learning algorithm. In some U.S. states, these algorithms are used to advise on bail and probation, and I encourage you to take a look at ProPublica's excellent reporting on the topic. But for Allegheny County, how do we evaluate the use of this algorithm? And let's think about some of the key issues brought up earlier in the podcast by Professor Felton to do this analysis. For example, is there bias creeping in? Professor Felton mentioned earlier that a source of bias could be if the data set used to train the data is biased itself. Or if there is a group underrepresented in the data set, perhaps children of one nationality or race are overrepresented in the data. This could lead to biased results. Further, how are the errors considered? Is there distributional justice with respect to the errors? 
An error in the result roughly translates to the feeling of a benefit of a doubt. We could get a sense of this by looking at the outputs of the risk assessment algorithm and seeing if one demographic gets systematically higher risk scores than another or vice versa. Professor Felton also mentions that we need to make sure that we are optimizing for the right thing. In the case of Allegheny County Child Protective Services, the question is, what is being optimized for? Or, in other words, what question is being asked when the risk score is calculated? It's whether or not a child will be abused or neglected in the future. But how is this translated into data that the computer can understand? In this case, they built their algorithm based on 76,964 allegations of maltreatment made between April 2010 and April 2014. A key word should jump out, which is allegations. This is indeed a complicated case. And another question we need to ask, could there be a feedback loop present? In other words, and I should mention before I say this, that I do not know if this is happening in this case, and it is only a cooked up hypothetical to describe this question of feedback loops. So you could envision a scenario where an interaction with a child protective services goes into the database, which then leads to a higher risk score, which makes it more likely that the family will be visited by child protective services again, which again goes into the database, and so on, until the score is pumped up high enough to warrant removing the child from the home. If this is happening, it would create a feedback loop where the existence of the algorithm creates a problem. And at this point, I want to play a couple of further questions and comments on this case given by Professor Eubanks. Um, if you are harmed by one of these systems, at best, so for example in Allegheny County or the Allegheny County Family Screening tool that um, risk rates families uh, who they think are likely to abuse or neglect their children in the future, the best kind of redress you can get in that system is if you are found um, indicated of maltreatment, you're put in a registry, um, a, a child abuse registry. Um, you stay in that registry 10 years after your youngest child turns 21. So 30, possibly 30 years, and it massively changes your life chances because you can't work in, with children, you can't work in home health care. Like there's all these ways that particularly poor and working class women support themselves that are no longer accessible to you. The best you can do, if you can prove that they made a mistake, is maybe be expunged from that registry. But there are no mechanisms for remedy. There's no mechanisms for redress to say this has massively changed the course of my life, has created extraordinary harm, and if you made a mistake, there should be a mechanism for redress. So now we can ask ourselves whenever we learn of any case like this, or really any policy, are there remedies both for accountability and redress? And this may sound familiar to you, this is our human right to an effective remedy mentioned earlier in this series. Moving on to our third case, I want to start by playing a clip from Professor Alston. I think it's very important to distinguish between a positive and a negative approach to something like social protection. Uh, as soon as we get into the field of social protection, there is an overwhelming emphasis on the negative. Uh, we don't actually think in the way that you might rationally expect. Okay, so I work in the field of social protection. Um, you work in the field of AI. What can you do for me? And the instinctive reaction is, well, we can work out ways of narrowing down the number of people who are going to get these benefits. 
we can work out ways of telling you exactly what they're doing when they're not working as they should be. Uh, we can come up with all sorts of other techniques, but it's never the opposite. Okay, so why don't we get together and think about what the needs are of low-income people in our society and how those needs might more effectively be met if we were to develop AI programs and techniques. That's extremely rare. The point here is that these technologies could be working for us, not against us. Our third case is the Paired Kidney Donation Program. Let me read to you from an article on the topic published in 2018 by Quartz Magazine. There used to be only three ways off of a kidney transplant waiting list. The first was to find a healthy person from within one's own pool of friends and family who perfectly matched both the recipient's blood and tissue types and possessed a spare kidney he or she was willing to part with. The second was to wait for the unexpected death of a stranger who was a suitable physical match and happened to have the organ donor box checked on their driver's license. The third was to die. But then it occurred to doctors Given enough kidney patients and enough healthy, willing donors, they could form a pool big enough to facilitate far more matches than the one-to-one -one system of the past. As long as patients could procure a donor, any donor, even one that wasn't a fit with the patient themselves, they could get a matching kidney. At first, this required doctors to spend brain-searing hours poring over the details of blood types and tissue variations in patients and potential donors' charts then computer scientists and economists got involved. They built algorithms that performed these complicated matches more elegantly than human brains ever could. Now, thanks to artificial intelligence, a person stepping forward to donate a kidney to a loved one or to a perfect stranger can set off a chain that saves dozens of lives. Paired kidney donation is one of the great success stories of artificial intelligence. It doesn't eliminate jobs or scrub the human touch from medical care. It takes an incredibly complex problem and solves it faster and with fewer errors than humans can, and as a result saves more lives. Since the first paired kidney exchange surgeries took place in 2000, nearly 6,000 people have received kidney transplants from paired kidney exchanges identified by algorithms. Today, roughly one in eight transplant recipients who received a kidney from a living donor are matched with that person through the paired exchange. At the same time, Paired kidney exchange is also a perfect example of AI's limitations. A computer can only do what a human can teach it, and we can't teach what we don't understand. In the decades since medicine learned how to replace a failing kidney with a donated one, we are still struggling with the problem of how to distribute the precious few kidneys available in a way that feels fair and satisfactory to everyone, and doesn't result in undesirable, unintended consequences. AI can identify potential donors and recipients who are biologically suited for one another. In the future, it may even be able to weigh the moral factors that determine who gets a transplant first. But first, we humans have to agree on what those should be. That was an excerpt from the article in Quartz, written in September 2018 by Corinne Pertil, entitled How AI Changed Organ Donation in the U.S. By now, you may be able to see that it takes integrity and great care and diligence to implement a machine learning system well. Now before we go, let's boil down the questions we should ask ourselves whenever we hear about these systems being employed. Anytime, but especially when concerning the poorest and most vulnerable individuals, we should ask ourselves questions like, what data is being used? Is the data biased or is a group underrepresented in the data? 
How are the errors in the system being distributed across the groups? Is there a feedback loop where interactions with the system lead to more interactions and so on? What is the system optimizing for? If the system is created to cut costs, that should warrant further scrutiny. Further, is it optimizing for the right thing? And is the thing it should be optimizing for even measurable? If it isn't, what proxy is being used instead? And is it even a good proxy? Further, have we cut out any human discretion? Some lingo for this is having a human in the loop. And very importantly, are there mechanisms for effective and speedy redress for those harmed by the system? These are just examples of some key questions to ask whenever you hear about these automated decision-making systems being employed, or really, in many ways, any policy at all. And there are so many more questions being asked by legal and ethical scholars and policymakers, or even just concerned citizens and technologists that we haven't discussed here. For example, there are great questions around what we lose when we require quantization, the numbers needed by computers to be considered in the algorithms. In the conference, it was brought up that when we dictate that the only things that have value are those things that can be quantized, we are going to lose out. For example, how to value care work, how to value our love for our children and for each other. And in many ways, these questions aren't new at all. For example, the question of quantization has been asked many times in reference to our reliance on the gross domestic product, or GDP, to determine the health of a nation. Now, let's just discuss other cases and further reading, in addition to the three mentioned here. Outside the U.S., there's the biometric identification system in India and Kenya, with other countries following suit. There's also the universal credit system in the U.K., a recent scandal called RoboDebt in Australia, that wasn't just a system of automation, okay? So that was a suite of, of measures, including, at the same time, a dehumanization of welfare compliance. Scarlett Wilcox. So what it was doing was automating aspects of debt welfare debt recovery, but at the same time, there was a, a policy, like an internal policy, where if you didn't go through the automated system and change everything online, um, you weren't allowed to talk to a person. So you would call up and they would redirect you. And then at the same time, they reduced the number of people on phone lines. So it was a collection, a suite of policies, if you like, and, and measures that went part and parcel together, which is about delaying or denying human intervention or, or human contact and human help. And then there is the extremely troubling social credit system being developed by the Chinese government. And within the U.S., stay sharp for any mentions of algorithmic decision-making systems, not even including the cases of these systems being used in what has come to be called predictive policing, as well as risk scoring and sentencing and bail already in use across the U.S., they are also being employed to determine public housing allocations in Los Angeles and Medicaid in Arkansas and Idaho. Okay, do keep in mind that this is a topic that is happening right now. It is not just in our recent history, but it is ongoing. Keep your ears peeled and do listen in to the next and last episode in this series where we'll bring together everything we've been discussing with recommendations for paths forward. As in the previous episodes, Extra resources can be found in the notes, and please send any correspondence to aihrpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Stevie Bergman. I'll talk to you next time.